Well, here we are again for hour number two at Stand to Reason. I am Jay Warner Wallace sitting in for Greg Kokel. Um, I'm going to just talk about a few things real quick. I've got one person on the line, Jocelyn. Hold on. We're going to get to you right away. If you want to give us a call with a question, please do at 855-243-9975. Looking forward to talking to you today. Um, you know, I just had a chance this year. I was thinking about this, talking to Greg. And I remember when Greg re-released um, Tactics, he updated it for, I think, for the 10th anniversary. I thought, oh, it's a lot of work, right, to update a book. But boy, he he did uh, he took advantage of the opportunity and put a bunch of new content in that book. And I thought, well, I knew that I was about three years behind him on uh, Cold Case Christianity. So we thought, well, should we update Cold Case Christianity for the 10th anniversary? And once I had jumped into that project, it was all-consuming. And so, yes, we have the 10th anniversary edition coming out in September. And I think it goes on a pre-sale here in about two weeks. But uh, what was interesting about that opportunity is is I looked back at the book and I don't think there was a single page that I didn't revise in some way. Entirely new sections in the book, a lot of new updated information, uh, especially in the areas of archaeology. Stuff has changed in the last 10 years. That's a kind of a moving target. Uh, also had a chance to re-illustrate it. And when I wrote it the first time, I was able to put 90 little icons and illustrations in the book. And I was happy to do that. But it was my first book. And I think the publisher was like, you know. Uh, nobody that actually ever does that. Most authors are not illustrating their own books. And I, there was a limit. I thought I could push the envelope as far as I could push it with them. But now that it's been 10 years in circulation, um, I was able to re-illustrate it. And so we went from 90 illustrations and graphic elements to 390, 300 new images uh, that we were able to insert in the book. I think it's much more visual. It reads very differently. Um, it's been completely updated. And we have a new afterword in the book, too. And in that afterword, and a new preface and a bunch of other new stuff. But I wanted to address some of the objections I've gotten in the 10 years since writing the book. And one of those is something that you may have heard as well. So I thought I'd take this check, uh, second to talk about it. And it's just the nature of eyewitness accounts. Look, uh, I can't tell you, that's probably the most, that's the single most common objection I get on our YouTube channel, um, that you're an idiot for calling these eyewitness accounts to begin with. Uh, for a couple of reasons, they'll say. Number one, they are written by anonymous people centuries after the fact. Well, that was the first, that, that's what I believed as well as an atheist. I mean, I'd heard that so many times. And one of the first criteria for eyewitness reliability is, was the person really there to see what they said they saw? So for me, the first thing I needed to know is how early are the accounts? Look, if you want to lie about Jesus, what you do is you wait till everyone who's who knows the truth is dead. Then you can say whatever you want because there's no one there to call you a liar. So if you write this in the second century or the third century, yeah, you're going to get away with all kinds of stuff because there's no one alive to call you out. Of course, if you're writing it in the first century, that changes the game. And I just needed to know how early it was written. And, and by the way, you'll hear people say, well, mo modern scholar, look, scholarship was pretty much unanimous on this for centuries <laughs> until really German um, biblical scholarship and, and skepticism uh, kind of formed the pathway for scholarship ever since. Um, I think the, these are written early, but. Uh, I've got other reasons why I believe these are eyewitness accounts. You'll, you'll hear all the time people will say, well, they were never really in, intended to be seen as eyewitness accounts. Um, this is even among scholars who are Christians. And so one of the uh, objections I address in the book, in the new, new sections of the book is, you know, why do you think the Gospels are eyewitness accounts if scholars disagree? Well, first of all, scholars are welcome to disagree. And 
the idea that that this is you know uh, this disagreement is relatively modern within the history of the church. So I just think it's important for us to understand that. And I've got several reasons why I think they are eyewitness accounts, and I'm, I'm just, I've tested them as eyewitness accounts. That's what cold case Christianity is all about, and that's why I think that's an objection that I hear a lot because that would defeat the entire premise of the book and other books like Jesus and the eyewitnesses by Richard Bauckham. Other, other people have written about the eyewitness nature of the gospels. And so of course that you're gonna have to defend those kinds of claims. Now, I think there are four reasons why I embrace these as eyewitness accounts. And the, the first is just the attributed statements, attributed statements of the gospel authors. Look, it's pretty clear that the gospel authors saw these as accounts in which they are recalling data that occurs in a certain order at a certain time in history at certain locations on the planet. That that means that it's not like, um, you know, like the wisdom statements. It's not like the prophets. It's not like the letters. These are, are, are historical chronologies. These are historical accounts. And the only question is, is, was the person who wrote it really there to see it? Now, what you'll see is in the scriptures themselves, there are attributions. You know, Peter says in the letters that, that, hey, we're not making this stuff up. We saw it with our own eyes. John says in his own gospel in the last chapter, he says that he was testifying that his testimony is true. Um, that kind of language means that the author at least believes he saw something that he could describe as an eyewitness. But First John and Second Peter also have additional statements in them, like we talked about. And Luke, when he writes in his first chapter, says that he is speaking to eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Now, you can I've heard people try to twist that in some way to, to get that. Look, it's clear that Luke was with Paul in the book of Acts. There are even times in the book of Acts where Luke uh, drips, uh, drops into first person. He's there with Paul in the actual chronology he's describing. But he, he'll he tell you he did not know Jesus personally. He came in that second season, the life of the apostles afterwards. And that's where he learned about Jesus from the people who said they saw Jesus. And that's why he describes him this way in the first lines of his own gospel. So this kind of attribution in which they're saying, hey, we have our authors because we saw them. Now, this isn't true for Mark, right? Because Mark doesn't make a claim. We don't see Mark anywhere in the description of what's happening in that period of time, except when we get to the book of Acts. And But we do have the earliest uh, statements of the apostles, which will, of the uh, church fathers, which we'll get to. So the first thing I would say is that I would, I, I tend to, based on attributed statements that I find in the scriptures, the most reasonable inference is that these people saw themselves as recording something and reporting something that they actually saw. Two is the apostolic strategy. I want you to think about this for a minute. When you read the book of Acts, what is the strategy that the apostles use when preaching the gospel or sharing the truth about Jesus? Put it that way, sharing the truth about Jesus, even from Peter at Pentecost all the way through. What do you see over and over and over? I was struck by the fact that they didn't preach the gospel the way that Billy Graham preaches the gospel or describe the gospel the way that Ray Comfort describes the gospel. Instead, they described themselves as eyewitnesses of the resurrection, that they had seen the resurrection. That, to me, is very consistent throughout the book of Acts. And that means that the apostles were at least identifying themselves as somebody who had seen this, and they could share this truth as an eyewitness, and eventually could author gospels as eyewitnesses. So it's not just the um, attributions, 
It's the apostolic strategy that you see in the first century, which to me is most reasonable if, in fact, they saw themselves as what they were, eyewitnesses. But we also have a third thing, and I try to alliterate these a little bit for you. A.S., the attributed statements is the first. The apostolic strategy is the second. The ancient support is the third. And what you'll see is that the earliest writings of the church leaders Um, The Antonicene church leaders, those who were actually writing about uh, the apostles, writing about the eyewitnesses prior to Christianity becoming the religion of the Roman Empire. And why I think that's important is because if you're going to suggest that maybe there is some corruption that occurs when this becomes the religion of the empire, fine. I'm only going to talk about, though, then those uh, leaders in the church that were in the earliest centuries, the very earliest decades. And what you'll see is that in the earliest times, people describe these um, um, apostles as eyewitnesses. In fact, Papias even is the one who says that Mark's gospel is not even from Mark. It's not, Mark's not the witness to that stuff. He's writing this at the feet of Peter, who was the eyewitness. And Mark is with Peter in Rome, according to Papias. And that's why we attribute Mark's gospel as the account of Peter um, in, in, in the four gospels. So you have, that's your third AS. The fourth is authoritative selection. And what I mean by that is that the highest criteria for selecting the gospel accounts we have was that they were written by eyewitnesses or by people who had access to the eyewitnesses. And one of the tests they realized even then, and although this is a criminal uh, test we use in criminal trials that I describe in Cold Case Christianity, the idea that they have to be present, which means that the earlier accounts are the ones that are reliable. This has been when the, when the Gospels were uh, codified and, and canonized. It was the earliest Gospels that even a skeptic like Bart Ehrman would say that the earliest accounts we have about Jesus are the four canonical Gospels. As a matter of fact, this authoritative selection based on when they were written as what kept some of the non-canonicals, this is one of the, the church fathers would, would see a new description of Jesus pop up from some group as a non-canonical gospel. And one of the first claims the church father would make is this is written way too late. This is not written by an eyewitness. This is written late in history. You should not pay attention to it. Before they would even demean or try to argue for the nature of the author being corrupt, they would simply say it's not written early enough to have been an eyewitness account. And really, the eyewitness status of the of the gospel authors and the authors of the New Testament, even the letters, is one of the first criteria. This is why early books that were used by the church, like First Clement, are not in your scripture, because Clement was not an eyewitness. He was a student of Paul. And so although his book is beautiful and First Clement is, is orthodox in its teaching, it's not in scripture because it's not written by an eyewitness. So that authoritative selection is the fourth piece in the, in the pie. That, but so you have basically the author saying that they are seeing something they're reporting and, identif- and identifying themselves as people who had seen and touched and spoken with the risen Christ. You have a strategy that you see then employed in the book of Acts in which they're uh, preaching the gospel by simply proclaiming the resurrection as eyewitnesses. You have ancient support of the earliest church leaders who described them as eyewitnesses. And finally, you have the authoritative selection in which those gospels were included because they were written by eyewitnesses. That, to me, is one of the reasons why I decided to examine the gospels as eyewitness accounts. 
And that's what started me on this entire journey. Now, I, I want to say a couple other things that I see uh, pushing back on a little bit too that I think are worth talking about. And one is this idea, well, yeah, but look, you would never accept hearsay evidence in a criminal trial. And at best, this would be hearsay evidence, a hearsay testimony. Here's what that means. In a criminal trial, everyone who's being accused of a crime has the right to cross-examine the witness who is making a claim against them. So if I don't have access to the witness, I cannot cross-examine them. And therefore, we don't allow that kind of testimony to come into a criminal trial. So if I called a witness, for example, and said, well, my cousin saw him do this. Well, where's your cousin? I can't question you and cross-examine you to find out that maybe you're lying. You're not the cousin. I need to talk to your cousin. He might have all kinds of holes in his story that we can poke because he he's lying maybe. But if I don't have access to him to ask those important questions, I can't determine any of that in front of a jury. Therefore, we don't allow you to testify about what your cousin said. Your cousin has to come and testify about that. And so we don't have access to the authors of these gospels or the people they were talking to. So when Luke is writing for the eyewitnesses or Mark is writing for Peter, this is all hearsay, right? Okay, look, in criminal trials, our goal is to favor the defendant because um, we, don't, we don't want it to be easy to prosecute people on trumped up charges. So we would rather let 100 guilty people go than falsely convict one innocent person. So we slant the thing in favor of the person who's being accused. That standard is absolutely appropriate for criminal appropriate for criminal trials but it's not appropriate for anything dealing with history because if it was you could never be certain of anything that happened beyond the generation in which an eyewitness lived oh you think you know something about your grandparents because your parents told you nope sorry you can't know that whatever your parents told you about your grandparents if you didn't if they if you didn't see it and if they just heard your grandma say something about your aunt, you see how silly that is? The entire, your entire um, personal history would be relatively unknown if you applied the hearsay rule to historical accounts. We couldn't know anything about our history of our nation, but more importantly, about the history of your own family. And that's why that's an inappropriate standard for historical claims. The other objection I get sometimes is this one. It's the idea that, okay, so look, uh, did they write it right away? I think we can date the Gospels into the late 40s, personally, looking at some of the evidence I see in Scripture and in history. But if that was even true, let's say it's the 50s, 20 years. You mean to tell me you think I can have a 20-year gap between the sighting and then the actual uh, claim that's being made? That's just too too big. Can't Can't trust it. People, you see the problem? Stories change in 20 years. Okay, well, a couple of things about that. Uh, number one, I, most of my trials involve a witness that we found later who never uh, wrote a report or was never interviewed at the time of the murder. And now 20 years later, we're going to bring that person into trial and they're going to testify to something. So I'm pretty comfortable with witnesses who pop up 20 years later. But, but here's the trick. What we'll often say is... Um, did you tell anybody in the last 20 years what you're telling us today? Because that's going to be important. Because number one, we can go back and see if the story has changed from what you told that person the year it occurred to what you're telling us now. But also it speaks to whether or not you are recalling it correctly. 
here's what I mean. Imagine a one scenario in which I observe something and I don't say it to anybody. I just have that one observation. And then 20 years later, I try to recall it really for the first time. I never really thought about it for all these 20 years. I haven't talked about it with anybody. I'm just trying to recall it. Tough, right? I think it would be tough. On the other hand, if I see something and the next day I tell my friend about it, and I'm so excited about it that I tell many other people, and I repeatedly tell the story over and over and over again for 20 years, well, now the odds of my getting to the end on the basis of just enthusiasm and repetition is very different. And I also got a number of people in the middle who have heard the story and can spot the changes. This is the nature of the kind of testimony we have. These folks, immediately, you see it in the book of Acts, from Pentecost on, they are, I mean, just days within the the ascension of Jesus, they are proclaiming the truth about the resurrection over and over and over and over. If you trace, for example, Paul's claims in 1 Corinthians 15 and see when it was he received that data about Jesus, you can trace it down to within three years of the resurrection. That that consistency of repeating the claim over and over and over and over again gives me great confidence in what I'm hearing today. Also remember that I say this all the time, that not all claims, truth claims, are created equally. Uh, Some claims are, uh, most people who are listening to this, if you're a guy and I asked you, what did you do for your wife for Valentine's Day this year? Valentine's Day, just only a couple months ago, most of you would say, let me think about it. If I said, what did you do for your wife for Valentine's Day three years ago? Forget about it. Well, because if you've had enough, I've had 44 Valentine's Days with my wife. I can't remember probably, I I can't remember what we did this year, if I'm honest with you. But if you ask me what we did in 1988 for Valentine's Day, I can give you a detailed, robust hour by hour description because that was the day we got married. Not every Valentine's Day is the same for me. And not every kind of truth claim is the same for people. If you're out there fishing one day and you fished a thousand days in your life, And you can't recall one day from another, but if one of those days a guy walks up to you on the water, that's the day you will remember because some claims are different. Some observations are different. So I think between those two, I'm pretty comfortable with the idea that you can speak something over and over and over again. I'll tell you this. I do talks as does Greg and I've heard Greg's talks. Okay. They're word for word identical. I've heard him do the same talk. Uh, at CIA for 10 years. I hear it every year. It's exactly the same. I could do it for him. Not only is it the same, he inflects it the same way. He pauses. He starts and stops. If I had a wave file of his voice, this is true for all of us, by the way, (laughs) Frank Turek, myself, all of our talks, if you compared the wave files from the talk year to year, you'd see they peak and pause at the same, it's clearly the same talk. Well, why? Because we've said it so many times. My daughter used to say, I could give your talk for you. I've heard it so many times. I could give Frank's talk on how to, you know, uh, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. I've heard it so many times. I'm sure you could do the same with mine. That's what repetition does for you, is that if you do that for 20 years, and then at the end, you write it down for the first time, you've never written it down. Well, guess what? What I write down at year 20 is pretty much going to be what I started saying in year one. Because I just said it so many times over and over and over and over again. Anyway, I hope that helps you to think about 
the nature of eyewitness accounts and claims that you make over a period of years and how long it takes you, you know, doesn't really matter when you write it down, as long as you've been saying it the same year after year after year. Anyway, we have one more uh, quick break and then we're going to come back to our first phone call. Jocelyn, thanks so much for holding on. Give me a call at 855-243-9975 and we'll see you on the other side of the break right here at Standard Reason. Would you like a Standard Reason speaker to speak at your church or event? Greg, Alan, Tim, John, and I, Robbie Lashua, are available both in person and online. Just email booking at str.org to schedule us today. We can address a wide array of topics, from bioethics, gender issues and science, to theology, philosophy, and how to respond to other worldviews, all from a biblical perspective. Whether it's a Sunday sermon, Zoom conference, or YouTube live event, our skilled and engaging speakers can be there either physically or virtually, with the goal of equipping Christians to effectively influence the culture for Christ. To read our bios and learn more about the topics we cover, visit str.org. Then email booking at str.org to schedule Greg, Alan, Tim, John, or me, Robbie, today. Hey friends, would you like to be encouraged throughout your week with timely, relevant content meant to bolster your knowledge, wisdom, and character? Or maybe you have a desire to be connected with other like-minded Christians from around the world. If so, then you need to follow Stand to Reason on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Not only will you be able to interact with other Stand to Reason followers, but you'll also stay up to date and informed on our latest resources and events. In our current culture, it's important to have something of value to break up your social media feed. So just visit str.org and find the links to all of our social media platforms at the bottom of the homepage. Warner Wallace with you here, sitting in for Greg Kokel at Stand to Reason. Thanks for joining us back here on the other side of our break. And you can reach out and give me a quick call. We have a few spots left open for you. At, um, and you can call me at, let me get my phone number up here. It is at 855-243-9975. Uh, just we're listening to the uh, promo real quick on the speakers. Um, and I thought uh, Robbie was talking about it, and I just saw that you know Amy is going to be leading a workshop on scripture scripture memorization at the Women in Apologetics Conference. That's going to be on June 9th and 10th. It's in Anaheim, California, and the theme of the conference is orthodoxy. You may have noticed that's becoming a more and more important issue, primarily because um, we are we see that the church is drifting. The last caller we have, and we're talking about, yeah, you know, you, you've got people who identify themselves as Christians, yet they don't seem to even hold to the plain uh, theological orthodoxy of the scriptures. Now, not that there isn't a lot that we can find as non-essentials that we can disagree about, but there's a lot of stuff that we need to be able to lock down as an essential claim of Christianity. Uh, 
And that's what this conference is going to be all about. You can learn more about that at the uh, womeninapologetics.com. Womeninapologetics.com. If you go there, they've got a sub page also, but you can see it from the homepage. And you can find out more about that conference on June 9th and 10th in Anaheim, California, where Amy will be leading a workshop on scripture memorization. Okay, finally, Jocelyn, you've been so patient to wait this long to get in the queue. So let's get to your question. Thanks for waiting from Hagerstown, Hagerstown, uh, Maryland, right? Yes, that's correct. Excellent. Good to talk to you. Yes, good to talk to you. Um, I have a question around family planning and what your perspective would be from like what the Bible would say is correct from a family planning perspective. So I'm married and have two kids and just recently starting to really dive into scripture and reading every day. And now I feel convicted about not necessarily... Um, you know, having my husband get a vasectomy, for example, because, you know, is that taking away an opportunity that could have been in God's plan? Um, and then the same the question, even outside of like a vasectomy, like family planning within a marriage, like, should we be doing that? Like, is it morally okay? Kind of get your perspective on that whole topic. Yeah, I have written a little bit about this. Um, and so I'm just looking at my notes also. Um, but I'll, I'll tell you there's a couple of things about it. My, my views of this have changed over the years because when I first started, you know, I wasn't a Christian. And um, Susie and I were together for almost 20 years, 18, uh, before becoming uh, Christians. And we were just talking about this the other day. Look, I think we've got to separate, first of all. Um, do I think it's, it's it would be um, morally permissible and biblically permissible for you as a, uh, in your husband to, to be able to pace the appearance of your children by using some natural means by which to pace, even if it's just from anything from abstinence to any other way of, of measuring rhythms or whatever it may be, would it be biblically acceptable for you to pace the distance between children? I, th- I think we'd probably say yes, because there's lots of reasons why even from a health perspective, you might want to do that. So the question really becomes, you know, what, where is it, where's the line drawn and where do we, uh, if I could go back and do it again, I would probably have 10 kids. If I'm honest with you, um, and my first perspective as a non-believer was really more about, well, what can we living here in Southern California, what can we afford? I mean, honestly, that was really the biggest driving feature for me. Um, you know, it's how expensive it is here. It's, it was tough. And I, and I felt like this is all we could afford. And, and because we were not Christians at the time, we never gave it, we never had to run it through a biblical lens. Also, I, the, the relationship between what you're, how much we trust God for things, I, we didn't trust. We didn't know there was a God to trust. And, and I think that, that so if I had to go back and do it again, I think I, would, might, I might be conscientious about, for health reasons, pacing our kids. But I don't think I would have been as restrictive at all about whether or not we had kids going forward. Okay. Um, as many kids as we would have wanted to have. Now, here's what I would say. To the extent that we might use some form of family planning that involves the death or destruction of a human being, then we would see that. Of course, that's absolutely out of bounds. And there are some contraceptive forms that actually involve the destruction of a fetus. Uh, Oh, yeah, the abortus. Sure, exactly. So I think those are the kinds of things that we would say are absolutely out of bounds. But I think really... What I would say from scripture, and I, my notes to myself, you know, Psalm uh, 127, 3 and 4 talks about how children are a gift 
from God. And they bring with it that gift comes responsibility that we have to have as parents. Uh, but you'll see this often in scripture. Um, uh, you also see that that I've written in my notes here, Proverbs 16, 3, Proverbs uh, 21, 5, and James uh, chapter 1. Um, so I think that just in terms of my own thinking about, well, can we plan in a certain way? Would it be uh, biblically acceptable for us to plan the pace of kids? That's very different. Um, but okay. to take the, to, to take a permanent action, what you really are, I think to me, I'm not that saying this is unbiblical, but from my perspective, if you have a, a child and you think, well, we can only afford one and we only want one. And we only think we can, we can, we, we can raise one because we're feeling like we're overwhelmed or anxiety or whatever it may be. So now we're going to make a, a permanent decision. Uh, looking back at that, that's something that I, I would not advise going forward because what we're really saying is look when, when you get married and you enter into this kind of relationship that's a trust relationship you make from the point you get married i'm not just trusting mm-hmm. god for this relationship with my spouse i'm also trusting god for the family that this relationship is going to produce and and so we know when we enter into that kind of relationship that that we're going to enter into something that's going to probably going to produce kids right so so right, i think that right. as long as we're we're, we're not using the um, that we're staying away from those forms of, of birth control that um, that that actually create the death of a fetus. I think that's a very different kind of have an issue. Now, what what have you probably been talking about this with the people that you know? What are they? What are the what kind of advice have you gotten so far? Well, i I don't have a lot of like really. I would not even say like good Christian, but you know, Christians that are like reading scripture and like that I can talk to about it. Um, so I talked mm-hmm. to a lot of people and they're just like, oh, it's, it's whatever you can afford. Like, you don't want to have too many kids. Like, that's going to like stifle your travel and all of this. So I get like a lot of, you know, the, the, the secular, like cultural answers to the question. And even my husband, honestly, who is a believer is like, no, we can't handle more than two. We can't financially like support that. We shouldn't do it. And so, yeah, I've just been like at odds with it because I'm like, I feel this conviction to not necessarily take permanent action to prevent it but everyone else is just kind of like you know saying the opposite right so i I just need to get more on it yeah and i think it's funny how we always have these plans right and i'm thinking i think it's i think it's proverbs let me get my logos out real quick i think it's proverbs uh 16 16 proverbs 16 9 um we're always good as humans at making these plans and we think we have plans and then we establish these plans and we think, okay, we're going to only do this, only do that. And 16.9 Proverbs says, in their hearts, humans plan their course, but the Lord establishes their steps. And this idea that, yeah, you know, it turns out that if God's got this um, and and if we are sold out and trusting God in this situation, I think that to me, it's just a matter of like how we, how we pace them, not so much do we have them. And, right. and you might, you know, even in your plans to pace them at a certain pace, God's got other plans often. And, and, that, and then you're just going to celebrate that this is, this is something that, that God intends. Um, but I'm looking back at, now, of course, I'm saying this as a grandfather now, it's very easy to talk as a grandfather, <laughs> right? Because the only right. uh, members of my family, that are going to have kids are not me. It's going to be my son or my sons <laughs> and my daughters. So it's not going to be, that's not going to be um, right now. My sons are having the kids. So, so it's really easy for me to say that, right? But the reality of it is, is that I think that as long as you're not doing something that is causing the death of a, of a fetus, of a human being, 
that if you can use natural means by which to pace the, the appearance of your kids, I think you're within kind of what's allowed for us, what's what's kind of outlined for us. I'm sure I'm going to catch all kinds of sideways flack on that, but that's I think that's probably how I would approach it today. Okay. No, I appreciate that, that perspective. Yeah, I wish I could kind of offer more wisdom on that. You know, if Amy Hall was on this side of the microphone right now instead of on the production side of the microphone, I bet you she'd have a much better answer to that. So, but um, that's <laughs> going to be my answer for today. But I appreciate you yep. calling me, Jocelyn. Thanks so much. Yes, thank you. Yep. Yeah, All I've right. got a line, a line a room on the line actually for you if you want to call as well. So please give me a call at 855-243-9975. Before we started the program today, by the way, 855 243 Nine nine seven five. Before we started the program today, I was talking with Amy about this, and, and she was mentioning that that so much of what she's dealing with, I think, as the kind of resident apologist who deals with all the interaction online, all the the, the blog posts that get comments and all of that, right, is that she's finding that so much of the case now is not um, is Christianity true in the way that a boomer like me might have been interested years ago, but is Christianity good? Is is Christianity, um, uh, does it teach principles that are good for us as humans even? And that's been something that I have been just fascinated with in the last several years, is the goodness of Christianity. And that's why the next book I'm writing is really about making a case for Christianity from, from um, uh, um, biblical anthropology. Like, what are the principles that Christianity teaches that actually aid human flourishing? And if you even had any idea at all at how much um, things like like traditional marriage aid human flourishing, you forget about Christianity. If you made a case for human flourishing just from attributes that actually assist in human flourishing, uh, and I've written an entire chapter about this in the next book, you would be blown away by, it turns out, these 15 attributes that I discovered working homicides. Um, are actually attributes that are ancient on the pages of the New Testament, and in fact, um, are principles of biblical Christianity that help people thrive. Now, we've discovered through modern studies and modern research that this is the case, but it's not over confirming anything that's, that wasn't known to the, the biblical authors, because everything was known to the biblical authors. Um, and so one of them is just the issue of, of marriage and having kids. And how much people thrive and flourish if they are in um, marriages in which two biological parents are raising their children, their biological children, in a low-conflict setting. And any deviation from that actually starts to thwart human flourishing. But it turns out that, that couples that marry and marry early and allow God to chart the course of their families are typically wealthier, mentally healthier, and I just assembled the entire set of studies that demonstrate this. They have a higher level of satisfaction in their relationship, even in their love life, their sexual life. They have less stress, less anxiety. They have more emotional support. They have healthier children of their own. They are more steadily employed. They live longer. That's right. The data shows that. They are physically healthier, and they have less death anxiety, that thing we were talking about earlier. This is These are the kind of benefits of marriage. If you didn't care about Christianity a lick, if you would embrace marriage the way that the New Testament embraces marriage between two biological parents that raise their biological children in a low-conflict setting, 
you would thrive in those areas. And the data continues to show it. So it turns out that, but that we have to kind of surrender ourselves and all of our desires and wants and all of our, you know, kind of selfish, you know, um, choices to this, to a, a spouse that we are connected to. Cause it cause listen, some of the marriages I've, I've worked, <laughs> I think Gaffigan, the, the comedian's got a, a good bit on how it seems like Dateline, the, the show that I've been on so many times has shifted only to murder investigations involving married couples. Like everyone who gets married eventually is going to kill themselves or kill, kill each other. Right. And so I think that's, that's, it's true that a bad marriage can be terrible, but it turns out that good marriages that are stable, this is why I always say that if there was no gospel, um, if there was no gospel to preach, if there was no Christian gospel, Jesus never came, but you wanted to change human culture in the most significant way you could change it for human flourishing and there was no gospel to preach, you could just make a consistent argument for traditional marriage because it would have a huge impact on the trajectory of culture. So anyway, that being said, uh, we are going to take a quick break because I've got another call on the line I want to get to from Victoria. We'll take a quick break so we have time to get to that on the other side. You're here with Jay Warner Wallace sitting in for Greg Kokel at Stand to Reason. Did you know Stand to Reason has a YouTube channel? We release a new video each Monday on the topics you care about. Through short, engaging videos, our speakers train you on tactics, offer apologetics tips, answer common theology questions, and address big issues in the world today. Join tens of thousands of other subscribers so you can stay up to date when we release a new video. Just go to youtube.com and search STR videos, all one word, and hit the subscribe button. That's STR videos. Take advantage of this free resource to help you stay informed, encouraged, and equipped as you share your worldview with others. When you choose to support Stand to Reason with a monthly gift of $10 or more, you become a strategic partner in the work of equipping Christian ambassadors. Your monthly commitment makes you a part of a special group helping STR train Christians to confidently and graciously defend their convictions. Your monthly gift helps us plan and manage STR's resources and provides consistent support to aid our ongoing work. As our thanks for your partnership, we have created some benefits to express our gratitude, like a 10% discount in our online store, access to a private Facebook group, and more. To become a strategic partner, visit str.org donate. Click How Often Will You Donate and choose Monthly. For personal assistance, you can email oceanwilson at ocean at str.org. Jay Warner Wallace sitting in for Greg at Stand to Reason in our last segment uh, for this week. And I've got caller Victoria on the line. Victoria, uh, thanks for uh, being on hold all that time. I'm glad to talk to you. Thank you for having me. Oh, yeah, no problem. Um, my question is related to um, firm. So I'm I was researching different types of cults recently, and it made me think about when someone has a revelation from an incorrect. They're having some sort of um, vision or dream. I I understand that what was like I'm thinking about the Mormons, but I don't know how in the Old Testament if someone was to receive something in the same manner, how they confirmed that what they received was from God. If 
I just don't know how that works, kind of. And it's just making me think about something I never thought about before because I've been looking into these things. Yep, totally understand. Um, we, my wife and I, have been um, in study every night. We go through three or four chapters. You do the Bible in a year, kind of a program, and so we have been doing that as well. And we are right now in uh, Chronicles, and we just that means we just came out of, um, you know, just came out of Samuel. I just came out of Kings, and you'll see that there are times, even within the history of the of the Jewish nation, when prophets are consulted, and they give they make a statement. And then another prophet will make a contrary statement. And it's usually described uh, in some way in the text. But so it's not as though this hasn't been happening forever. And that's why there is data in scripture that kind of helps you to parse out who is a reliable prophet and who is not. Now, here's what I tried to do in in a book called Person of Interest. I tried to separate the prophecies in this way. Sometimes you have somebody who tells you a piece of information. And as a, as a detective, and you're wondering, it's like an informant. He'll say, okay, this guy's doing this crime over here. He's been doing them every week. Now, if, if you've got an informant like that, and they've given you correct information in the, back, in the past, well, that confidential informant, the CI, becomes a confidential reliable informant. Because he's given you information in the past by which you made an arrest. You know he was reliable in the past. He has different status. Uh, within the criminal justice system and how he is viewed by judges because he's been reliable in the past. Well, it turns out there were some biblical prophets who made claims about history that came to pass. So because we know those 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 claims came to pass historically, I'm, I kind of give them a, a different category for me. So I separated those prophets out to see like, what did those prophets say about the coming Messiah, for example? Okay. So one way is to ask the question, have they been correct in the past? As a matter of fact, that test of having been correct is the test that God uses with prophets. And it's in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 22. And you'll see that that entire section is about false prophets. But what Moses says in that section is, is when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. Now, of course, this is different, right? In real time in the Old Testament, you were dealing with people, and if they were ever wrong about a prophetic statement predicting something in the future, they were immediately uh, disregarded as prophet. So you had some real-time assessment. But we can also see this, for example, with Joseph Smith. Has he um, given prophecies in which he has predicted something that then did not come to pass? And and you'll see that, that most modern Mormons who try to defend this will say, well, yeah, but there have been some Christian prophecies that didn't come to pass. And they'll try to say, well, the, no, the reality of it is that Scripture is pretty clear in Deuteronomy 18.22. If there's a prophet who speaks something and it doesn't come to pass, so it, it's not to be trusted. And he's not to be trusted as a prophet. So if you go to our website at coldcasechristianity.com and you just type in, I'm going to do it right now because I know I've written about this, uh, type in Joseph Smith and prophecy you will get an article that I wrote about this demonstrating why when I was a new investigator of Christianity, I was also investigating Mormonism because I had Mormons in my family. And I thought, well, if that's true, why wouldn't I want to be a Mormon then? Because at least I've got family members who know what the Mormonism is about. And I didn't have any Christian family. 
But the problem, of course, is if you examine Joseph as a, as a prophet, he he fails. He's he makes several prophecies that did not come true, um, and these are more difficult because they are very specific and they are closed dated. What I mean is, he says things are going to happen at a certain time. And when that time comes, it didn't happen. So it's not open-ended. Look, an open-ended prophecy, you can say something, and if it, you could, they could argue, well, it hasn't happened yet. So I'm only interested in the closed prophecies where the time period is very specific. And, um, you know, um, I can tell if he's lying or not. So, he, for example, he said there would be a temple in independence. This is Joseph. And that he gave this revelation uh, on September 22nd and September 23rd in 1832. And he foretold of an LDS temple. You've seen these temples around uh, the United States that it would be built in Independence, Missouri. And he wrote it in Doctrines and Covenants, Section 84. And it never happened. And when he said it was going to happen, he said it was going to happen within their generation. And 25 years later, people still believed it. And at some point they said, okay, it's not going to happen. So when you have false prophecies where they're closed dated and they don't come true, that's one way to test to see whether or not the prophecy was reliable. Now, whenever I talk about this with Mormons, they'll say something like, uh, well, there's a generation that uh, is predicted that's going to see this amazing thing. It's in scripture. It's in the gospels. And Jesus talks about all of this that you're, they're going to see. And then they say it's a certain generation. Well, they never saw it. So they'll almost always try to offer that there's an alternative example of this in Scripture, and that because it didn't happen in Scripture, that this is, but that's not actually the case, because the, the Scripture they're talking about is a prediction Jesus is talking about the um, when he when he appears to the disciples with, with Moses and Elijah, the transfiguration is what he's is in mind when he's talking about it. And of course, that did actually occur within that generation. So my point, though, is all you need to know is that if a prophet makes a claim and it's a close dated claim and the date passes and it doesn't come true, that prophet is not to be trusted. And so when we see prophets in the modern era, like Joseph and a bunch of others who have made claims about the end of the world and times, blah, 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 it's going to happen on this date. And then it doesn't happen. They change their date. And surprisingly, people say, okay, it's going to happen on the second day. They still fall for it. When Deuteronomy 18.22 clearly says you get one shot, here's what you have to be as a prophet, 100% accurate. If you're 99% accurate, you're no longer a biblical prophet, and that's the problem. So I think that's that, that to me is the clearest um, rule in Scripture, and it's in Deuteronomy 18.22. I really help? appreciate well, let me ask you. Yeah, let me ask you while you're talking about this because I think it's. I'm fascinated by just the fact that we, you know, we, we, uh, we, 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 we see these things and we, we all are examining the same kinds of things. What is it that got you interested in looking at Mormonism, for example? Um, I pretty much just I well I came out of a um, a new age kind of background because I didn't have a solid foundation growing up, so. I do. I just have a particular interest in knowing what's incorrect. So I was mm. just looking. I hadn't had a chance to kind of investigate Mormonism until recently in any depth. So um, the the thing that kind of brought me to this particular question is going to different churches with friends that are identifying themselves as Christians, but have like a very charismatic bend, and they talk about prophetic words and things like along those lines. Mm-hmm. So the understanding of 
what what is still applicable in the Old Testament um, related to someone telling me a word from God and what what isn't um, is kind of what I was confused about. Well, I, here's what I would say. I, I think I, I believe that God can speak a word to people. Okay, I'm not not somebody who says that there's no miraculous ability to be prophetic about something or to speak. But remember that in Scripture, this ability to to um to, to I think it's it's what it's you always want to test because here's my own practical experience. My Mormon family would say that they've had experiences, and that experience could simply be that God spoke to them in some way. But if you don't test this. You're only using half half the process. So I think when I have an experience, I want to test it to make sure. If someone came to you, for example, and said, you know, um, I'm now sleeping with my boyfriend because I, I prayed to God about it and God gave me peace that it was okay for me to sleep with my boyfriend. Well, should we test that uh, alleged word from God against the written word of God to see if it's morally consistent? Because if it isn't, that's a word from somebody, but it may not be from God, Okay. Because we haven't tested it to see if it is morally consistent with what has been revealed to us clearly in Scripture. So I'm always looking at it and saying, well, can I measure this in some way? Now, the skeptic in me says, if this is a statement that's so neutral or so uh, inspecific, it's so it's so generalized that there's there's no way to really test it, then I just ignore it. I'm just going to tell you that because I, I I think we have a duty to be both. It's that balance we talked about earlier in the show between justice and mercy. We have to use both of these. I want to be, uh, I use my heart and my head. We have to use those two things in balance. And I think that's what we're called to do. And so if I'm not discerning, I am called to be discerning. Just not like so discerning that I don't listen to anybody. Now that's as a cop that, that I'm always suspicious. But the reality of it is, I think we are called to be discerning. And if we're not, we're setting ourselves up for all kinds of problems. So here's what I would say to you also. If you're in a place where the kind of reading through Scripture is ever imbalanced in any direction, you're probably not in a great place. Because if they're only focused on one aspect of the Christian experience at, at the, and, and neglecting the other aspects of that experience— then this is what often happens in certain churches that focus on on one narrow lane of of, of thinking or of of, um, of gifts of giftedness, for example. I've been I've seen churches where the entire thing's about speaking in tongues, and there's a lot of other aspects of the Christian experience that are neglected altogether, and in favor of this, and that 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 imbalance I think is as part of the problem. So I just would my advice to you would be is you seek a place that allows you to be both discerning and uh, you know, caring to use both your head and your heart because we are balanced creatures and God is, you know, it's not the renewing of your heart that changes you. It's the renewing of your mind that changes you. So just be thoughtful about how you approach those things and you'll be fine. I really appreciate that. Um, like I said, coming out of the new age kind of lens growing up, I have a, tend to, a tendency to be more critical of these types of things. So I just want to make sure I'm correcting myself as well. No, that's a really smart, uh, yeah, perfect. I totally understand. Thanks so much for calling us, Victoria. I appreciate your call. Thank you. Take care. Yep. Now I I got a chance to go to my, probably the best call of the day. And it's probably going to be the hardest call of the day because I'm talking to Samuel in Mobile, Alabama. And Samuel, how old are you? I'm good. How old are you, Sam? I'm seven. I'm seven. Seven years years old. old. Man, you're, you're already thinking about these great questions. I'm so impressed. 
Okay, so go ahead and give me your question. I'll see what I can do with it, okay? If God wants us to be with him, then why do you create Satan? Well, do you think that Satan can prevent you from being with God? Mm. I think we choose to, like, fall away, but God, um, like, but Satan deceives us to do it. Yeah, I mean, I think that you, I, I could see a sense in which God could have said there's going to be no Satan at all, that there's not going to be any temptation at all, and every single person who's born is just going to be brought into my presence. You know, you're going to all going to come home with, and all you have to do is be born and you're in the club, basically. I, God could have done it that way, but I think what God wants is for you to truly love Him. And the problem with that, is that you'd have to have the freedom to love him. In other words, if if you didn't have a choice, if I, Samuel, I couldn't make you love me by saying, Samuel, you will love me. I mean, you might say, okay, I love you, Jim. But you wouldn't probably really mean it, right? You'd just be like, I'm afraid of how I'll say I love him. He's going to be mad at me. Well, it turns out that God doesn't want that kind of love. He wants you to really love him. And that means he has to give you the option to not love him. Because then if you pick the option, I'm going to love God, God knows you actually want to love him. It's it's from your heart, not because he forced you. He gave that same option to Satan. He created him, but Satan had the option because God wanted the love of his creation. And that means he had to allow him the chance to not love him. And Satan decided not to love God. And that's what that's a choice that all of us get is you could be somebody who says, I'm not going to call Jim and stand to reason. I don't even like that show. I don't like anything about Christianity. I hate Christianity and I hate God. You could say that because you have the freedom to say that. And God gave you that freedom so that if you decided, no, I love God. And I want to know what's true about Satan and God. And I'm so interested that I'm, I'm willing to call a radio show. Well, when God sees that, he's like, wow. That that's he's seeing now a choice that you're making, and he says that is love. And so I think this is why he allows all of us to be able to make a choice. The same way he's allowed you to make a choice. But let me ask you, Samuel, what what provoked you? What what is it that caused you to want to ask that question to begin with? Did something happen that made you think about this? Yeah, it was pretty it was sounding kind of exciting to Hear that um, the greatest detective in the world will want to ask answer his questions. So it's interesting. <laughs> I have to laugh because you're starting to believe my false press clippings that I'm <laughs> the greatest detective in the world. Well, I, I'm a detective. Okay, I'm in the world, but that's about as close as I can get to that claim. Okay, but but I'll tell you this: you're a detective too. Because most people your age are not asking those questions. And let me tell you the first tool of detectives, it's asking good questions. Because a lot of people go through their life and never ask those kinds of questions because they're not really interested. By the way, God can measure the degree to which you love him also by your question, your willingness to ask a question. When you're digging for information about God, you're demonstrating to God that you are interested, like a detective is interested. So you already have, um, you know, the gift of detectives. So, so here's what I want you to do. Uh, we're going to put you on hold here in a minute. 
and I have, I don't know if you, we have books for children. You're not a kid, but you are a kid. Okay. <laughs> but you're smarter than the average seven year old I can tell already. And I want to send you all three of our uh, detective books for eight to 12 year olds. Cause I know you're ready for those. And so I'm going to have Amy grab your phone, your address, and I will send you our kids series so you can become an even better detective because you're already asking good detective questions. I want to make sure you have more to ask going forward. Does that sound good? Yeah. So let me ask you, Samuel, is your mom or dad there with you? Um, Dad. Your dad's there with you? Before I, I put you on hold to get your address, can I just talk? Can you give the phone to your dad so I can talk to him? I'm here. Hey, dude, you got a, you did a you're doing a great job. <laughs> Have, you're raising up good investigators. So let me ask you: does, is this is Samuel the kind of kid who asks you a lot of questions? And what do you what do you do when you need to give an answer? Where do you go? <clears throat> well, I've I've tried to uh, since I've become a Christian. Um, 2006, I've tried to um, find the answers to all these hard questions, and I tried to, to challenge him and to think through uh, his beliefs and why he, you know, why he believes what he believes, and and he asked me uh, hard questions in return. Well, good. You know what? You're doing a great job. I'm going to send you books to help him make the case. So stay on hold right now so I can get your address. Good job. Congratulations. Thanks, Samuel, also for calling us. Jay Warner Wallace has been with you today, sitting in for Greg Kobel at Stand to Reason. What a great way to close our show. Thanks so much to all of you who are listening. Be sure to catch this and uh, STR Ask on uh, the Stand to Reason podcast on uh, the Stand to Reason platform. And I'll see you again here soon.